Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go Mac and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me again today as we're continuing in this new series that we're doing on basic Christian living, uh, taking the Bible and applying it to your life. And as we get into this, since we're talking a lot about the Bible here, I just want to take a shorter lesson here today, um, just briefly go over something. When I say briefly, briefly, that doesn't mean it's like three minutes. This is probably going to be like 15 or 20. But anyway, I want to approach something before we get into the Bible. We just did a lesson on what is the Bible, but it it brings up questions. Um, when I have presented this information before at groups um, and at churches and things and at camps, people often bring up a question about why Testaments, why the Old Testament, why the New Testament. And so I want to approach that direct question here, because I have discovered over the years that most critics of Christianity and non-Christians who have never come to a, a faith or have, shall we say, left of the faith, seem to have something in common. It's something I noticed, like I say, a few years ago. And what this is, is a difficulty with something written in the Bible. But specifically, their problem seems to be in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Now, in some cases, it's the creation account. That's probably the most numerous one, um, because it totally goes against Darwinian evolution. So I hear this one a lot. Another one that people have questioned often is the Tower of Babel, or the Exodus. That's another huge one that a lot of people have problems with, or uh, makes them want, want to leave the faith or something in some cases. Uh, the fall of Jericho. Well, <laughs> I've been to Jericho uh, numerous times, and I can tell you, the, the evidence is there that this place was burned, the walls did fall, et cetera, et cetera. Or the story of Jonah. Uh, we have a whole series on our lesson, or on our website, on Jonah. Things with David, David and the Goliath story and stuff. I mean, there are many stories that I've heard from people over the years that seem to give them problems in their faith. 
And I have come across some people that have problems even with Jesus, not just isolating the Old Testament, but even problems with Jesus. But to be honest, few have ever tried to say that or make a case that Jesus is a mythical figure. Um, Even most scholarly skeptics will agree that Jesus was at least a historical person, a teacher and a rabbi. So that is not their problem. So my question is, why do people struggle with the Bible so often? And as I said, it usually seems to be something in the Old Testament. Well, it has occurred to me that most of the time, as I say, they don't understand what the Bible is. So we have to approach this in this series. If we're going to be talking about taking the Bible and making it a part of your life and in Christian living, we've got to have a very good understanding. So the next few lessons, we're going to get more into what is the Old Testament, what is the New Testament. But they often cite, as I say, people who have problems with this, they often cite something from the Old Testament that they dislike or is troublesome to them. And then what they do is they just throw the whole, the whole thing away, the whole Bible away. And some will just walk away from it because of some little difficulty in a story um, that they just don't understand. So let's first look at the Bible in general, which we've already, in a way, did. We've talked about what the Bible is. And, um, but I want to get more into the Bible in general here, sort of a continuation of the last lesson, before we actually take on the project of what is the Old Testament, and then in another lesson, what is the New Testament, what their purpose is, and, and why were these written and stuff. Because believe it or not, if you can understand what the Bible is all about, Um, It alleviates, right there, a lot of the problems, but a lot of people just don't take the time to learn these things. So the Bible in general, let's just look at it this way. The Bible comes, the word Bible just comes from a word called Biblia, which appears, from what we can tell, to have first been used around 386. I mean, we commonly just call it the Bible today, but until around 386, there was no term called the Bible. Now, according to the the late great theologian F.F. Bruce, one of my favorite theologians, in his book, called the Canon of Scripture. He writes that one of the early Christian leaders, a fellow by the name of Chrysostom, used the word Biblia in a book that he wrote called the Homilies on Matthew. And in this, he was describing the Old and the New Testaments in this book he wrote. From what we can tell from history, the best we can tell from history, this was the first mention of the word Bible, when he used the word Biblia in describing the Old and the New Testament combined. Um, Now, it basically just means books. That's that's what it is. So the Bible, we we say, well, that's the Bible. But, you know, there's there's other Bibles that are out there. You know, Golfer's Bible. I one time saw the Scuba Diver's Bible. I'm a diver, and um, I sort of caught my attention, made me laugh. There's I've seen some kitchen Bibles, like dessert Bibles and stuff. In other words, there's just a bunch of books that have been compiled together or or instructions and things like this is what they've, they've put together. But the word Bible, Biblia, just means books, basically. That's what it is. You see, the Bible, what we're, we're going to be talking about the Bible, our uh, Old and New Covenant or Old and New Testament, is a compendium. It's a compilation, if you will, of 66 different books written in a span of about 1,600 years by more than 40 different authors under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's your technical definition. Um, it's a compendium of 66 books by 40 authors, actually written on three different continents. So don't think that the Bible is merely one book. I mean, we often look at it that way because it's bound in one, these 66 books are put together in one 
large compendium, one large book. But um, try not to think of it as one large book. It's 66 different books. Now, it is divided, obviously, into two sections. So uh, take you back a little bit, maybe to help you understand if I've already lost you on this, make it a little easier to understand. Um, do you remember back when you were maybe in a sophomore or a junior in high school or something like that, or even, even younger in some schools, where you studied U.S. literature? And you would have a book um, on U.S. literature. Like, I, I still had uh, have a copy of U.S. literature from colonial times to the time of the Civil War. And in here we have uh, many different um, poems, short stories, some prose, and there's actually, it's a very thick book, but it's also got some, some other books in there. Um, and uh, edited edition, they're abridged, but it's got works of, you know, Washington Irving, um, it's got Edgar Allan Poe, um, and, and all these others uh, that were famous writers. Well, the thing is, it's all bound in one book, but there's separate books in there. You get the idea. So it's like a U.S. Our Bible is sort of like a U.S. literature book that you use in school. It's composed of many books, uh, poems. Our Bible has essays. It has short stories, just like those things do. Um, and it's by various authors. Yet our literature book is bound into, that we use in school, is bound into one large volume because it's too expensive to buy all these individual books for all the students. So and um, companies that write literature books, they compile them all into one, and that's what you get. And so our Bible is sort of the same way. You, um, you can buy individual books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, individual books of the New Testament. You can buy just an Old Testament. You can buy just a New Testament, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is, we buy generally what we have in our homes and stuff, and what you see in churches is the one volume, 66 different books bound together. Now, as I said, it's divided in two sections. The Old Testament is the first part of our Bible and comprises the largest of the two sections. It's, it's larger than the New Testament, no, no question about it. It contains 39 different books. And it's been divided, if you did not know this, it's divided into sections again. And it's written in two different languages. The Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, as I like to usually call it, is divided, uh, or is, is composed in two different languages. Mostly, almost all of it is in Hebrew. But there are some Aramaic uh, sections, or Chaldee, um, the Babylonian language that you see also in, in sections like that. Daniel has, has a large section like that. And so, but most of it is in Hebrew. Now, the first five books of the Bible that we have of the Old Testament are called the Law, or the Torah. Um, these were written by Moses. Um, there's also a group of books following this um, called the History. Uh, there's books on songs and wisdom. Um, there's books of prophets. So it's divided into sections. So that's what we have with our Old Testament. Now, a there are few denominations, a few denominations, Roman Catholicism, the Anglican, and Episcopalians, that include a third section to a Bible, books that are called the Apocrypha. Um, they have this in their old Bible, or in their Bibles, and it's usually located between the Old and the New Testament. Um, the reason being, that's when they were written. Time-wise was between what was in, when the Old Testament was being composed and the new one. These books were mostly written in Greek, 
during this intertestamental time. And some of these are very interesting books. They are important books um, of history, no question about it. You can learn a lot about what goes on uh, by studying the, the Maccabees. But there's also books of poetry, and there's some books of just literature. They're just stories that you find in there also. Now, according to the Jews and to most Protestant denominations, they were never considered sacred text, or what I mean by that is that God inspired these authors to write them. They were never like that. They're very popular pieces of literature, of history, and stories and things. But because they were never considered by the Jews to be God-inspired, um, you will not find them in the Tanakh. That's the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. In their Tanakh, they're not in there, nor are they found in Protestant Bibles because they were not God-inspired. So many Christians I come across um, in Protestant denominations have never read any of these, or even many of them can't name the books, or even name two or three of them. They don't know what's in there because it's not something that is normally preached from in church because it's not God-inspired, um, these books. But they are interesting books, and if you're a student of history, you want to study at least the Maccabees and some of the others. Um, and if you just want to, to know some of the popular books that, that were out there in, in, uh, the, before the time of Christ, you can read these things. And they are interesting reads, no question about it. So that's why, if you ever wondered why the Roman Catholic or Anglican Bible or the Episcopalian is different than most modern uh, Protestant Bibles, that's the reason right there. Because the Protestant Bible is only taking what the, the Jews considered sacred, that's the, the books you find in the Old Covenant or Old Testament, and then the New Testament, just what is God-inspired. That's what we have. Now, we need to make something clear, too, and this is very very important, particularly in apologetics um, or any time you're going to try to defend your faith or explain something even in um, scripture and stuff. Um, if you have a biblical worldview and you're taking a stand on something, you better know how to address this. Now, some of you are going to say, Michael, you're making a big thing out of nothing. No, I'm not, because as I go around and I speak, I'm telling you from experience over the years, I'm telling you something very important, and this is it. Ready? A book does not say something or state something. I'll repeat that. A book does not say something or state something. The author does. The author does. Now, I learned this the hard way back when I was in 10th grade, back in high school in American history class. I wrote a book report for my teacher, Dr. Or, uh, Mr. Gary Campbell, very, very amazing uh, teacher and greatly influenced me in my love of history. Uh, in my book report, I often wrote, the book says, the book says, the book says. Well, what he did when he graded this paper he circled every one of these statements where I say, the book says. And he started off, every time he circled it, he started to write, books don't speak, in bright red pencil on that. After a while, he got tired of doing it because I did this so often. And he, you know, I mean, my first couple of pages, books don't speak, books don't speak. Um, even when he graded it, and he circled every one of those on my paper, so I knew he read the paper. Um, he took me aside when the, 
when he was handing them back in class, I remember he handed mine back and he had written across the very top of the paper, see me after class. So after class, I stuck around and um, as he handed, um, or after the class, I handed him my report and I said, you says here, um, you wanted to see me. He, he says, yeah, have a seat here for a second. I want to show you something and teach you something very important. And he says um, that um, I was constantly doing this and, and, and writing book. And, and I, he says, you see where I wrote books don't speak? Well, he says, they don't. Um, and this is very important, he said. Books don't speak. The author writes things down. Now, you read, uh, or you can repeat what an author says, but it's so important that you don't say the book says. Now, of course, back then we didn't have audio books and stuff, but even so, I'd be a little nervous about saying such, uh, a, such a statement like that. Um, now, you might be wondering, Michael, why are you making this point? Why is this important? Why, why does this matter to me? Well, let me tell you why. And as I said, this is so important. Because I often hear Christians, pastors, critics, and others constantly exclaim this, quote, the Bible says this, dot, 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 unquote. Please understand, for this is so, so important. It is not the Bible stating or speaking, but the authors under the influence of the Holy Spirit who are writing these things down and we're reading them. And that's how it should be. For it's, it's not that they are just writing it down on their own either. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, I'm going to read this out of the Net Bible. That's the New English translation. It reads, Above all, do you well if you recognize this? No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The way someone should say something, and I try to do this as much as I can, um, ever since 10th grade, whenever um, Mr. Campbell taught me this, um, I go on when I'm speaking on biblical things. God says in his word, or I'll write, uh, if it's something dealing with Paul, Paul wrote under the influence of the Holy Spirit that, and then I go on with what he's saying. Um, the Apostle John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote, um, so I, I do it that way. Um, I don't say the book says. Because, you see, this is so important because now you're putting the source of, well, the, the sub substance of what you're saying back to the source it came from, and that's God. God inspired these people, as it said. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they got this information from God. So if you're quoting something from the Bible, it's not like your opinion. You want to state, well, this is what the Lord says in his word, or this is what Paul writes in his word. This is what David wrote in, under inspiration. Uh, this is what Jude wrote under inspiration from God. So that's the way you want to phrase it. Otherwise, what you're saying, if you just say, well, the Bible says, well, that doesn't mean much because Bibles don't talk. You want to give the reference back to God. That is so important. And if, if you start doing apologetics or you start defending your faith and, and stuff, or even just teaching or preaching or anything, it's so important that you do it this way because now you're, giving the, you're taking the material that you've got and you're putting it to the source where it came from. It's not 
coming from the speaker or the teacher. If you're quoting from Scripture, it's coming from God. So I often say, if you've got a problem with this, your problem's not with me. I'm just repeating what God said in his word. So if you've got a problem, <laughs> don't kill the messenger, though they often do that. Uh, don't come after me. Your problem's with God. That's how it should be done. But now, here's another problem. If someone does not believe in the Bible or in God, making statements and quoting from Scripture a lot of times is useless and meaningless to them. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give an example. Um, Back years ago, I was asked to speak at a major university on the campus to the Atheist Club. And uh, I was there, um, uh, I was asked to speak to this club on this topic. Is there a God? Now, I did, and I spoke there, and it went tremendously. I mean, I had a great time there with all these atheists, self-proclaimed atheists, sitting in a room, and I just had a great time explaining and talking about uh, evidence of God. Now, what amazed many of the students who attended, many of the atheists that were there, is they said, wow, afterwards they were telling me, you didn't quote one Bible verse. Even some Christians who came with me to lend me support um, for walking into, say, like a lion's den with these um, these so-called atheists, uh, they came along, and afterwards we went out to eat, and they were like, you know, we're a little disappointed in, in your presentation. Why? Because you didn't quote the Bible once. You didn't even use John 3.16 once. You didn't do any of that. And they asked me, they said, why didn't you use the Bible? I simply stated... Do you know who the audience was? They're atheists. They don't believe in the Bible. They've never read the Bible, most of them. They could care less what's in the Bible. They don't believe it. To them, it's not an authoritative, inspired book. Thus, for me to quote it to them means absolutely nothing. You need to know your audience. That's why I didn't. So what did I use? You're wondering, well, how did you speak to them? I used logic, science and logic. Just went that approach. Now, if you Christians are questioning my motive or my methods of teaching and preaching here, let me show you something from our own Bible, something I learned decades ago when speaking to groups, and that is to know your audience. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, just look, or you can look this up later, go to Luke chapter 13. Now, what you're going to read here, written by... um, by Luke, Dr. Luke, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's putting this down and he's describing what's taking place. His fellow traveler, Paul, yes, Paul the Apostle, who was extremely educated, an extremely wise man, one of the most educated people of his day, and he's preaching to some people. Who are they? They're Jews. What's he preaching about? Who is Christ? And this is in, recorded by Luke in Acts 13. Now, what does Luke use in his his discourse to these Jews about Christ? He uses the Jewish Holy Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and he tells their history. And they understand this because they accept this. They know this. Uh, they know this book is, is almost as well probably as Saul or Paul does. So they know it, and so they, uh, it, it works very well with them. So they understand it. They are listening to Paul. Yet, if you take a look in Acts chapter 17, 
we see Paul again speaking, but now he's speaking to a different audience. He's in Athens, in Greece, and he's asked to speak to this Gentile group. And what source does he use to speak? Does he go back to the Jewish Tanakh and, and start just quoting things from the Old Testament? No. Luke again records this, and Paul did not use the Jewish Bible. Um, he just didn't do it. He's not quoting from Exodus. He's not quoting from Isaiah or some of the Psalms. He's not using any of that. What's he using? He's using logic, because that's what these people, these Greeks, were used to, was logic. And he's using the basis of their education. They don't study the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They don't care about that. They don't believe it. So he doesn't use it. These Greeks are polytheistic. So he spoke on the true conceptions of God using logic and even the basis of their own, um, their own education, their own background that they are very familiar with. So he didn't speak on prophecies concerning Messiah because they didn't believe in the Jewish scriptures. So it's a totally different style of teaching that Paul does as opposed to when he was with the Jews to now when he's with the Gentiles. He used languages both could relate to. He used sources both could relate to. You understand? Paul knew his audience in both circumstances, and he varied his speaking to fit them, speaking the truth at all times. So why am I dwelling on this as we're getting into this Christian living thing? Well, if you're going to take the Bible out, you've got to know your audience, because too often Christians are speaking to non-Christians and are not using their resources well. Also, too often, Christians depend upon making their point on spiritual growth using Jewish scriptures alone. In other words, just the Old Testament. If you're speaking to a Jew, this can be very effective because they believe that book and they know that book. But if you're speaking to non-believers and people who don't know or even care about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you're not using the right resources. I hope this makes sense. Like I say, I learned this years ago when I, and when I first started out in speaking and stuff, I didn't quite catch it. But as time went on, I started to learn these things. And taking even back in high school, having non-pastors, you know, non school teachers and stuff teaching me some of these things, it all made sense to me. Though I'd never thought I'd, at that time I'd be doing what I'm doing today. But I've used this and I keep using these kind of things that I've learned over the years. And I'm trying to pass this on to any of you that are trying to talk to neighbors or friends or relatives or something about Christ and about the gospel. Know your audience. So if they don't believe the Bible, well, you just can't use the Bible by itself. You're going to have to take a different means to approach him. Now, we've talked about, and I've used the term Old Covenant or Old Testament briefly, and I want to just talk briefly here, just for the last few seconds here, on the New Covenant, the New Testament. The New Testament consists of 27 books, all written in Greek. Everything was written in Greek on parchment. All of the books were written within a 60 to 70 year span of time, the last book being written somewhere around 100 A.D. So these books were written in a very short period of time, as opposed to the Old Testament, which was written over a thousand years apart. Um, these are written in a short span of time, not even a hundred years, uh, just a little over half a century in time. And Paul wrote most of this, this New Covenant, the New Testament, and he did so in letter form, in letter form. And all these books and letters were copied then 
over and over, because they didn't have Xerox machines and things, and the printing press wouldn't be discovered or created or invented for another uh, 1,600 years, so it's going to be a while. Um, they were copied very, very carefully, um, and we'll talk about how that was done in a future lesson, how these things were copied and then sent to churches throughout the Roman Empire. For we know from Roman historians that Christians treasured these copies. They protected these manuscripts even with their lives. Even when the books and the letters of the New Covenant were being circulated during that time period, and they're being copied and sent to churches and stuff, they were regarded as holy scripture. How do we know this? How can I state that? It's what we read in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Again, I'm reading this out of the Net Bible, the New English Translation. But look what Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, In regard to the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some things in these letters are hard to understand. Things the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do to the rest of the scriptures. Notice it says, for one, that Paul is getting this information given to him. Now, we've already mentioned where he's getting it from, the Holy Spirit. But did you notice that that passage ends in verse 16, that, there, that Paul's writings are considered scripture? Because that's what that says. The Apostle John wrote the last book of the New Testament, and he died somewhere around 120, so somewhere around maybe 100 A.D. to uh, 120 A.D., Revelation was written somewhere, maybe even 90. Some scholars think it was more around 90. We don't know for certain when it was written, but it was written towards the end of his life anyway. And that was the last book that's written, and God says it's complete, it's done. Now, around this time, the church grew in number, great numbers, and locations all over the world. Copies of this new covenant were being made, and they're carried to all these churches. There's churches everywhere. They need copies of these manuscripts that Paul is writing, these scriptures that Paul is writing. Now, Jews all had in their synagogues copies of the Old Covenant, so you could get those, um, those also being written very carefully, because you're talking about the Word of God. It's just not a novel or some history thing. It's the actual Word of God, so you're going to treat it with great respect. So they made copies of that, and they did the same thing with the New Testament. Testament books. By 150 AD, 150 AD, the Old Covenant was referred to in writing by a guy by the name of Melito of Sardis. He talks about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. It's likely that he is also referring to writings of the New Covenant in the same way. But much of his writings have been lost to antiquity. But we do know around 150 AD, these books, particularly the Old Testament, were called the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant. We actually see that. He writes that term. So that's where we get the idea of that um, these of the Hebrew Bible being called the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And like I say, since he's talking about the Old, if he's talking about an Old, he's also, because the New Testament's already been written, he's probably talking about the New also. We do know that uh, by the time of 150 to 240 AD, that there was a fellow named Tertullian, um, who also not only wrote specifically on the books of the New Testament, which he did, he wrote a lot on the New Testament, as it was called, but he compiled them into what was called, he called the canon. 
coming from a Greek word meaning the rule of faith and truth. So as some critics will say, the reason I'm giving you this, some critics will say that the Old Testament, New Testament, you know, particularly the New Testament, didn't put, uh, wasn't around in anything until after the time of Constantine. Well, that is not true, because Melito of Sardis talks about the Old Testament, Tertullian, at about the same time, somewhere um, in the latter part of the second century, is talking about the New Testament. So these books are there, and they were put together in a term called the canon. And not talking about a field artillery piece here, canon just means rule of faith and truth, the compilation of what we see of these 66 books. Let me just leave you with this as, um, as we finish off this lesson here, and then we'll get into what is the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Let me just leave you this, because this is going to be like our next two lessons. The Old Covenant, listen carefully, is the book of holy Jewish scriptures. They call it the Tanakh. We just call it the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Then there's the New Covenant. That's the book of holy Christian scriptures. Now you know why we have these testaments and what these testaments are. Old Testament, Jewish scriptures. New Testament, Christian scriptures. And then we're going to get into each one of these. So the next lesson we'll be, um, be recording here and following this will be specifically what is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And then after we do that one, what is this book of holy Christian scriptures we call the, the New Testament. What is that? So that's what we're going to get into next. But I felt like I really needed to give this lesson first because there seems to be some confusion on, on some of the things and, and how some critics say the, the New Testament didn't even exist until after 325. Um, or people will many times when you're trying to discuss something, uh, you're you have problems in trying to get what you're saying across to people, and it's because we just don't know our audiences. So I'm giving you some information and, and some suggestions when you talk to people. Uh, know the audience. Know what you can use to, to discuss with them in a non-threatening way. We're to do this with grace, not beat them over the head with our Bibles. We are to calmly, which today is sort of disappearing, but to calmly and with grace Give them information and let the Holy Spirit do the work. If you think you're going to be the person who's going to convince everybody, you're wrong because the Holy Spirit is the one who does this. He just uses you as a tool. So what you want to do is pray, okay, Spirit, God, help me. Give me the right words and the right approach for talking to this person. That's what you want to do. Well, I hope you've gained something out of this lesson, this little introduction before we actually get into what the Old and New Testament are um, and how important they are as we do this. But I want to thank you for joining me. It's always great to have you listening, and we love to hear comments. We had the most awesome comment that was sent to us just recently um, from a listener who told us about how much these lessons have helped them in their daily Bible study and what they're, they're doing with, um, and sh uh, sharing the information of our website with other people. And that just thrills us to death. So we, we thank you, and we'd love to hear from you. And again, if you feel like uh, you want to contribute to our ministry, hey, we're always looking for support to, so that we can expand this ministry and get more, more information and more materials out. And we just thank you. And... Until we meet again, take care and may God bless.
Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.